friends, welcome to the Redeemer Queen's Park podcast. Redeemer exists to help connect Jesus to people, people to community, and community to mission. We're gathering on Saturdays at 3 p.m. to worship God and fellowship. If you ever have any questions, or if we could be of help in any way at all, then please give us a shout at hello at redeemerqp.com. We hope you'll be encouraged as you hear another one of our Bible talks. Let's listen to the next episode. Got to bring you out of that reading just a little bit. When I grew, when I was growing up in the late 19th century, something that was huge for me, 80s and 90s, um, something that was huge for me was uh, going away to church camp in the summers. Uh, it's a big part of big part of my like spiritual growth and my my development made me uh, the man I am today, for, for better and for worse. Um, going away was uh, for a week at a time with other kids. I uh, would get away to learn about God. We'd sing songs, we'd eat terrible food, uh, we wouldn't shower, wouldn't really go to the bathroom. You know, I mean, you know what I mean. Like, I mean, it was just a week away from mom and dad and everything that was comfortable and familiar. And it was just like time away. And uh, when I look back on my childhood, one of the things... I remember those mountain peaks. also remember some valleys. But when I remember those mountain peaks, I remember times of encountering God as a child and encountering God as a teenager. And then you, you come back from summer camp and you go back to life. And life kind of sets in again. And before you know it, that deep sense of encounter and presence that you knew just a few days ago becomes a few weeks ago, and weeks ago becomes months ago. And before you know it, it feels like it almost wears off. Experience this as a, an adult today. Um, there, there'll be times when I'm able to get away on some sort of like church retreat, or staff retreat, and just go away. And you have a few days of like unbroken focus, able to think about God, talk about God, hear stories of what God's doing around. And then you come back, and you come, you come back to the stuff. Managing people, turning in receipts or not turning in receipts, looking after emails, keeping up with meetings and routines. And before you know it, the, the high of that moment it seems like it just starts to fade. We've, we probably feel this, all of us together, from week to week to week. We, we come around here. You might get around uh, midweek with some people for a community group, for Bible study, to think about God, to talk about God. You have that friend or you have those friends that whenever you get around, your soul is so refreshed. God is big to you. He's right in focus. Life seems to make sense. You have a sense of purpose driving you. And then you leave. And sometimes within a matter of minutes, even hours, it feels like it's gone. Here are three ways of asking the same question. How do I get God into my everyday life? How do I find God in the, in the everyday mess of this world that He put me? If you want to ask the question a different way, you could say, what difference does God make in the midst of this broken world? It's an important question. And Solomon, our tour guide through the book of Ecclesiastes, he has something like this in his mind in Ecclesiastes chapters 5 and 6. How can I maintain a sense and presence of God when I leave the church gathering? How can I carry with me a sense of God's purpose 
How can I carry with me a sense that God is for me and not against me when I wake up the morning after a community group and I go in the office and no one there thinks about God? How, how can we have that? Is that available and is that possible? Is the question that rises up as Luis just leads us through these two incredible chapters of Ecclesiastes. The idea is between verses 7 and 8. Verses 1 through 7, Solomon has us in the house of God. We're thinking about what it looks like to approach God and how to become a people that know how to worship God well. And in that space between verse 7 and verse 8, we all get up together, we walk to the back, and we line up the sidewalk, and then Solomon's going to lead us to take a look around the world in which we live. And he has some things to point out to us. And what he points out to us is the contents of the rest of chapter 5 and all of chapter 6. From the doorway of the church, our tour guide points us out into the world. He hands us binoculars at times to really be able to look off into the distance, to be able to focus and to see what is there. And when we look around, our hearts tend to get discouraged. Because while we get together in here, The broken world outside is not healing itself of everything that's wrong. When we get together in here, and this is an incredible grace of God that He gives to us week after week after week, we find some safety. We find some refuge. Our God is a strong tower and we get to run to Him to find a place to be unguarded, to be at rest, and to reload and to find our strength to go again. But when we go outside, we see the world hasn't been busy repenting. The world hasn't been busy healing itself. The world hasn't been busy of getting rid of its old habits and its old ways. No, it just keeps going and going and going. So how then is a Christian supposed to find her way? How then is a Christian supposed to find his way for another week? That's part of what Solomon wants to lead us into this afternoon. If, you, if, you'll, if you'll lean in, into it, I think we can we can find something that resonates with real experience across the room. See, we tend to taste God's presence and then go back into a world that seems hell-bent on souring a desire for God. We leave the mountaintop only to enter back into the valley again. If we're honest with each other, it feels like God gets lost on us. Not in between the times we come to something that's Redeemer. In between the times you think of Him and you think of Him again. It seems like we have this incredible ability to kind of keep missing Him and keep forgetting Him, only to rediscover Him and be delighted by Him and refreshed by Him again. So what would it look like for the gap between forgetting about God and forgetting about God again to begin to shrink? So we became people that had a sense of awareness of who He is and what He is up to in our midst. This is part of what we get to look at together this afternoon. How do you find God in everyday life? We need these two chapters of Scripture because this world that we live in is very confusing. And it is very discouraging. The Bible's gift to us that you can receive right now on the spot. It's nothing you've got to show up for later on. You can get it today. God's gift to us is wisdom. Gerhard von Rod, a German Old Testament Lutheran theologian, he said wisdom is being, becoming competent with regard to the realities of life. And God, through the book of Ecclesiastes, 
through chapters five and six, right here and now on the one, in the moment, wants to reach out to you and give you wisdom, wants to help cultivate in you wisdom, a way of knowing how things happen, a way of knowing how things really are, and a way of knowing what to do, to do about it. Wisdom offers us strategies for seeing the world. It's actually being full of the glory of God, even though everything about our sensory experience begs the other way. God is present in our, adver- in our adversity. Ecclesiastes says this. Ecclesiastes also says, God is present in our prosperity. The whole earth is full of His glory. So as we hear this, we need to hear like the honest truth up front. Churchgoers have no immunity to the pains of this world. And as Solomon stands us just outside on the steps, it's one of the first things we recognize. The injustices that we see in the lives of our neighbors, it's not somebody else. It's simply us, and we're about to go stand with them again. We have no immunity for this. But we do have very good news. We do get intimacy with God through this. Because while there's nothing that's going to ultimately prevent these tough things from coming our way, God does intend to be near to us, to bless us, and to lead us and guide us through the very tough things that we face. So immunity does not exist, but intimacy and well-being does. Among the various evils of the world, God possesses a power that He can give His people to enjoy and to endure the world that we live in. Let's just ease into it together. Having a look around Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and 6, I just want to point out a few things that help show you this is what's going on in the text. The first thing I want you to notice is in chapter 5, have a look at verses 8 and 9. The plight of the poor. As soon as we get outside the doors of the church and we start having a look around, one of the first things Solomon wants to show you is the plight of the poor. And in verses 8 and 9, he's going to point out to you that their plight is made worse as their rights are trampled on. That's right there in verse 8. The trampling on of rights takes place as middle managers and CEOs and government officials get caught up in power structures which serve the bottom line of financial gain. And this is proved in in verse 9. The ordinary worker gets used and misused in order to keep the pound from falling. And in contrast, how blessed are workers when the king resists such greed and remains in control of his tendencies. And he's committed to cultivating the fields. By the way, Old Testament throwback jam right here. Cultivating the fields. Solomon says to the people of Israel who knew what it was to cultivate fields, they knew equal protections and they knew what it was to work when they did not have equal protections. They knew what it was to work under Levitical law in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 10, chapter 23, verse 22. And they knew what it was to be under leaders who used whips, gave no straw, and demanded twice the work. So he's talking to a people who had this in their national identity. The preacher tells us we should not be amazed at this. Verse 8 is very important. We should not be amazed at this. Instead, we're given a language for empathy when we look at the unjust condition of many of our neighbors. So back to the question, right? I mean, you're leaving church camp, you know? It's, it's, it's 1997, you know? <laughs> 
The whole world is waiting back there. You've been on an island. You've been on an oasis. Like, here comes the world again. Going to the house of God and discerning God in the midst of everyday life, we still have to go back. And we still have to look at a world that has, seems to have no remedy from its oppressors. We look at a world nearly crushed under the heavy weight of difficult burdens. And from the doorsteps of the church, God very kindly leads us to consider the vexation, the sickness, and the anger that's in the heart of man. Look at verse 17. So this kind of darkness is a darkness that shrouds over some of our neighbors. Now, Ecclesiastes chapters 5 and 6, it says this darkness is here for a whole host of reasons. Some, some, some of the darkness is brought about by risky business moves, gambling addiction, or a manager who stole money and has now lost his retirement. But all around, wherever you look, you see people. For devices of their own and devices of social and societal pressure are swindled out of their own money. The Christian needs to hear this. God has no problem saying, I'm in all of this. The word that a lot of translators choke on, it just seems, it just seems so, so big. It seems like it's too much. Is chapter 5, verse 8. It refers to the district. And it refers to a group of people who do wrong, but they got people over them. The Hebrew has no problem saying, and it's God. God owns the whole tribunal. He owns it all. And this will help us if we'll, we'll allow this thought to come in and minister to us. Not that He is the primary cause, but He is near to all that is involved and all that are involved. None of this is above Him. None of this is too strong for Him. None of this is beyond Him. He is God. This is the point of Ecclesiastes over and over and over again. He is God. He doesn't need to be explained in the way we think we got to explain something to one another. He does not have to be offended in the way that we feel like we have to defend ourselves against one another. He is God. Then verse 14, down to verse 13 as well, the focus on riches being lost in a bad venture as a neighbor who has no financial means to help his children. Can you just imagine you're kind of being handed the binoculars by Solomon, kind of raise them to your eyes, and you're looking into a situation and you have this sense he is exactly right. This is the world that we live in. This is the town that we inhabit. Points you over there in verse 13 to a father and a son, but the father has nothing for his son in his hand. These parents and children have to relate to God beneath the daily strain of having enough food, clothing, and sustenance. These are neighbors that are there. They will work their whole lives with no opportunity for financial relief all of their days. So back to the question. Let's get the question. How does a person discern God when each day vexes, sickens, and embitters him? Like, how can we carry a sense of God around when this is the world that we live in? Can we get some relief? Can we find some help? How can we remember God when everywhere we look are these realities? Then, chapter 6, verses one and following. Look at another evil. Chapter 5 shows us a person who has lost money. A wealthy person whose money... But then chapter 6 turns the tables and shows us, listen to this, a wealthy person whose money is lost 
on them. And he pulls no punches in this chapter. This is someone who has plenty of money but doesn't know it. And someone who has plenty of money and doesn't know how to appreciate it. In contrast to the impoverished and in contrast to the bad-ventured neighbors, there are others that sit around with mountains of pounds wondering if life is worth living. This is our world. This is a person who doesn't recognize the very present grace of God in his life. And Solomon is going to pursue this person. And in this moment, I'm going to pursue this person. But you need to know how we get there is going to feel a bit jarring. Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21, we'll put the whole thing there. I don't know if you can read it from the back of the house. Uh, Someone says, soul, the wealthy man says to himself, soul, you have laid up ample goods for yourself. Soul, now finally, you're able to relax. You're able to drink. You're able to be merry. Luke chapter 12, verse 19. But Jesus responds, you fool, you fool. This very night, your soul is required of you and the things that you have prepared. Whose will they become? Jesus echoing the message of Ecclesiastes. People who live their lives carrying out the Western dream. Get all you can, can all you get, and you sit on your can. In the end, it all gets handed off to some children or some strangers through your estate, and you're gone. Jesus declares the moral of the story in verse 21, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Nothing wrong with having lots of treasure. There is something wrong with not living rich towards God. So here comes Solomon, and he won't hold back from us. In verses 3-4, through he says... I say that a stillborn child is better off than the one we're talking about right now. Solomon says of this child, for the child comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name gets covered. Verses 5-6, through Solomon does not mince his words. Let's be real. We are a real community. Men and women in here, We know what it is to have our arms ache because we long for a baby. And our arms are empty. Maybe we have a few in our house. We don't have as many as we once did. So let's listen to Solomon. Because if we're not careful, we might hear him this afternoon and we might get wounded by him when he does not intend to wound those of us who have aching arms. We might get frightened this afternoon and he does not intend to frighten those of us who have lost one of which we've heard the heartbeat before. Even though he should live a thousand years and twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the same place. There's a lot of comfort for us who have lost children this afternoon. And it's that the children we have lost are safe in the arms of a Creator who knit them together in the mother's womb. I wrestled with how to open this up for us, knowing knowing some stories around the room and knowing there are probably stories in the room this afternoon that we've just yet to verbalize to one another because we're on a journey with one another. But if you have lost a child, if there was a child that you heard the heartbeat and you never got to hold in your arms, you don't need to be taken aback by Solomon here. He actually has a point to make. And that point is that that child that you lost is not to be pitied most among all people. That child is safe 
that child is at rest in the arms of its Maker. And even in those moments, we have reasons to rejoice. We have reasons to consider our God and what He might be up to in all of this. See, a closer reading of this poetry here reveals to us that the tour guide intends to expose a deep fallacy that's held amongst the wealthy. Solomon's given us the equipment of wisdom here. We have to, we have to remember that's, 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 the, that's the play that's underway as we receive this. Those who love wealth and those who do not derive pleasure in God from it, those who believe themselves to be more blessed than any other people, those are to be pitied above all people. In contrast, Solomon's making a case. He's saying the worst possible life to live, according to this way of thinking, is not a life that just barely got started and didn't make it. Solomon is saying the worst possible life to live is a life that is spent getting and getting and getting and getting and getting and never enjoying God. Solomon says that rich man can live two lifetimes and he can live a thousand over. And to never enjoy God, that is the worst life of all. It makes sense then. The life of a baby, the life of a child that just started and didn't make it all the way to mom's arms, that's, that's not the worst life. That baby is ultimately at peace and at rest. No. The child knows rest. The rich man knows no rest. Chapter 6, verse 3 says, His soul is not satisfied with life's good things. For all his wealth, he possesses no contentment. Can't be found among, he can't be found among the treasures of his storehouse. He is unfamiliar with true joy. A wealthy neighbor that exists right outside the doors of the church, if he does not have God, he is ultimately impoverished. This is somewhere else in the Bible. Psalm 127, verses 1 and 2 says, God gives sleep to those he loves. All throughout chapters 5 and 6, all throughout the book, we have these stories. They just keep coming up. The, the wealthy aren't able to sleep at night for two reasons. One, there's a sense of guilt riding against them for how they got the wealth. And two, they're trying to figure out how they're going to keep the wealth. How they're going to keep the wealth from slipping away and going to somebody else. But meanwhile, the honest worker receives his work and his wealth as gifts from God. And he does not overshadow God with his wealth. He's able to receive things and say, thank you, God. And to be content with God. And to lie down and go to sleep. God's the one who gives sleep to His people. Rest of soul, contentment, and gratitude. These are not tied to how much or how little a person gains in this world. For this reason, there's hope for us. However little it seems under the sun, there's hope for the oppressed. There's hope for the poor. There's hope for the bad-ventured and the ordinary worker. Because Jesus comes along and Jesus fulfills this teaching by showing us what real treasure is. And real treasure that will last not just a lifetime, but tens of millions eternities into the future. And this is the message of Ecclesiastes 5 and 6. You can't judge a person by their circumstances. Prosperity may actually be on a person who's pitiful, wicked, and headed to an eternity without God. 
can't, we can't step outside these doors and say, oh, it's going well there. Ooh, that looks like a mess. Doesn't work like that. Prosperity and adversity are deeper than this. Adversity may actually be upon a person here this afternoon who loves God. The adversity may be a tender mercy where God is working powerfully in a person's life. We do well to remember Job at this point. All is not as it appears when you exit God's house. Initial reading on the surface, it's just a discouraging world where we tend to forget about God. And when you press in, things are more complicated still. Prosperity may be a camouflaged curse on a man surrounded with untasted and unappreciated wealth, while adversity may be the means by which God is bringing great blessing. Scottish minister Samuel Rutherford, he said, we ought to do well to remember in the cellar of God's affliction, a man can find God's choicest wines. God knows how to meet with us even in the low places. So all situations are not as they appear. We may be drawing the wrong conclusions about the world and finding discouraged from it. So, back to the question, and it's time for some resolution. How do we find God outside the doors of the church? Heart's probably feeling pretty low. It's like, wow, Tom, you just did a great job of explaining what I see and encounter, but I'm still not hearing the answer to that question. Like, can I find some relief? Like kids, kids in the room, like, how can I remember God when I leave Redeemer Kids? I go home, I have rest of the weekend, I don't know, somewhat peaceful, and then you show back up at school and all the pressure and all the anxiety hits again. What hope is there for you? The reality that we've covered is that daily life under the sun is infested with the loveless schemes of human beings. Daily life in this world the character and purposes of God, they shine, but they shine like they're shining behind an eclipsed sun. The purposes of God, you're you're still getting some heat. It's not total pitch black darkness. You're able to see a little bit of this and a little bit of that, but it's incredibly disorienting. Where's the true north? What are some strategies that we can take on board? The obvious point for us is that we cannot fix everything that is broken. Next week, we'll see this in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 13. Let's go ahead and start thinking about it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what He has made crooked? The key word there is to consider. You're going to want to focus in on this. All the attention that we spend, pouring over things that are broken, pouring over things that aren't right. Ecclesiastes has a, a word of grace for us. You can't fix everything. Sure, some of the type 3 Enneagrams in this room, we want to rise up and protest against this. No, yes we can. God has a word. Consider who can straighten out what He has made crooked. Surely the answer is none of us. We're at the end of ourselves. We need the help of another. So how do you get God into everyday life? Three practical steps. They're not everything, but man, are they some strong pegs to be able to start hanging your life upon. First, recognize the moment and respond accordingly. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. This is how we get God into the midst of everything else that happens this weekend, and we load up and we're prepared for Monday morning. If something goes well in your day, no matter how small, celebrate over it. Celebrate over it. God was in that. God was in that. No more wondering if you can be happy about good things. In the day of prosperity, be glad. 
If you live a life that feels like a life of adversity, but you have a moment of prosperity, be glad in that. Because God is in that. And He is for you. And He has not forgotten about you. The second one, learn to truly celebrate something. God will teach you. Each day can become a day full of hundreds hundreds of small but genuine smiles by which we take up a response to God in the midst of all things. God was in that. God was in that. And God was in that. A great deal of happiness is passing some of us by because we think when a good thing happens, we're supposed to think about it instead of rejoicing over it. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. Second, in the day of adversity, consider. Consider Ecclesiastes 7.13. Let the tough stuff sink in. Consider it. Don't run from it. How to find God in the midst of everyday life? God is trying to meet with us in the brokenness of this world that He's put us in. But so many times we're just trying to act like it's not that bad. We're just firing up all the God talk to try to drain out the power, the, 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 the sad, sad power of the world that we're in. No, don't, don't pretend it doesn't exist. Set your heart and mind on the awful thing. And then allow your mind to get set on Jesus who is above the awful thing. And allow Him to minister to you about how He is with you in the midst of it. The foulest thing will reveal something true about the nature of life and the nobler purposes that we were made for if we're only lean in and not try to run past it. So take time. Take lots of time in the week ahead to grieve what needs to be grieved. To ask questions of God where questions need to be asked. To wrestle with your own pain. To look at your own shadow. To work it out. And to see what God wants to do. And finally, in all times, know that God has His purposes. We cannot make crooked things straight, but God can. We cannot fix things that are broken, but God can. And we cannot know everything, but God does. So we can take our unknown futures and we can trust our known God very securely with every detail. The band, come on up. It's time to get to the end of this. Both bad things and good things will happen to us. And Ecclesiastes wants you to know this afternoon, and God's in all of that. This means that there is something larger at stake than our prosperity. And this means there is something more important than our adversity. There's God. And I don't know how this is going to land. Thinking of you this week, prepare just two headings, and we'll just let the Spirit of God minister this to us around the room. I don't know who I'm speaking to with this, but for some of us here this afternoon, for some of us, we can hear this and now we can lighten up. You can lighten up. Because all the energy that we spend trying to control and preserve our lives is next to worthless. There is no secret formula to life that we can figure out that will make God love us more or love us less and do everything that's gonna work a certain way. So for some of us in this room, It is time to relax your grip on this thing and to trust God and to recognize those many times we run around like practical atheists, demonstrating to ourselves, demonstrating to one another. We don't think God is in it, so we have to act differently. It's time to lighten up. It's time to trust God more. It's time to relax this sin-stained world that is waiting just outside those doors, God is in the midst of it. 
He intends to meet with us there and He intends to guide us through it. So quit bargaining with God and quit bargaining with everybody else trying to fix this thing and position this thing. Lighten up, trust God. For others of us in this room, though, the word is this. For some of us in here, we need to take life more seriously because of chapters five and six. I don't know who this is for, but stop acting like nothing matters because you don't know everything or you can't fix everything. He knows everything. He will fix everything. So let's take this thing seriously. We can stop with the excuses that we use to justify our various wonderings and all the harm that we inflict on others and ourselves through this. We can be done with it today. God will get the last word on our pain and God will get the last word on our joy as well. So let's take this life seriously. He's in this. We don't have to shy away. The point was read for us. It was in chapter five, verse 18. This is what I observe to be good that is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink and to find satisfaction in the toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of his life that God gives him because this is his life. How do we find God in the midst of everyday life? Find God as we given some amount of food this evening. We bring that food close and we allow it to be far more than a meal. We allow it to be a moment of experience and encounter when you realize that God is the one who's ultimately served you this plate. Take it in. Have something to drink, a cup of tea in the evening, a strong cup of coffee in the morning. You take that on board keenly aware there's a creator that understands things like vanilla extract to calm you down at night and caffeine to get you fired up in the morning. And you take that on board and you allow what C.S. Lewis to do. You, You don't worship the thing. You look along the thing all the way up to God and you give thanks to the sun who's letting these rays come down upon you. Remember that we live in a world called Christmas. The objective is not to get us out of here. The objective is to bring heaven down to earth. In this broken world that we look at, all the broken relationships, I'm getting moved by this. All the things that don't work right, everything that's broken, all the systems, all the structures, all the injustices. God owns it all and he has left us here agents of his change and agents of his renewal and agents of his transformation. So the artist, the preacher, the king, Solomon, he's writing here. He's reminding us that no amount of money can provide the ultimate satisfaction we're looking for. It's only a relationship with God who made us. He's present with us, friends. The times are joyful when adversity is on our doorstep. He has not left us. So hear this this afternoon. Every bit of our bone, every bit of our skin, every bit of our hair, every bit of our thoughts, every bit of our imagination, every one of your feelings and every emotion, every minute pleasure that you feel in a moment of prosperity and every piece of a glass shard that finds its way to you in a moment of adversity, all of this, all of this, is from the hand of our good God who made us and he loves us. And if we can only learn to sense him in the midst of it all, then we'll find a satisfaction that will never leave us and will never forsake us. So go ahead and stand. We'll get ready to sing these words together. Life under this sun is a God-inhabited life. Life under this sun in the midst of this world that is hell-bent on resisting him and rebelling against him 
does it all is just caught up in his loving arms. He says, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. He says to some of you this afternoon, right here and now on the spot, in this world, you will have trials and you will have tribulations, but take heart, I have overcome. We remember the words of Isaiah chapter six. In that year, the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, seated on a throne in the train of his robe, filling the temple. And above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying around. They were calling out the great message of Ecclesiastes 5 and 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This earth is full of his glory. Let's sing about it together.